My beloved brothers and sisters, my thoughts today are centered in the concern we all share over a growing crisis in today's world, a sort of spreading cancer which continues to eat away at the family unit which has been ordained of God. Divorce, with all of its diabolic side effects, threatens the very foundations of our society. President Joseph F. Smith has observed that marriage is the preserver of the human race, and without it, the purposes of God would be frustrated. Virtue would be destroyed to give place to vice and corruption, and the earth would be void and empty." End quote. Each prophet of this dispensation has said essentially the same thing in his own way. According to data from the National Center for Health Statistics, nearly two million divorces are being granted this year in the United States. This is the highest ever recorded and three times the number reported just 20 years ago. Most nations of the world seem to be following a similar trend, and today more than one out of every three marriages seems to be terminating in divorce. Families within the Church, unfortunately, are following this world pattern to an alarming degree, and it should not be so. U.S. News & World Report recently quoted Herbert A. Gleiberman, a recognized authority on divorce and domestic relations, as follows, and I quote, The biggest rise in the divorce rate has been among couples married 10 years or longer. It's not uncommon today for couples 25 and 30 years into their marriage to seek and obtain a divorce. He then identifies the main cause. Number one, he states, is the couple's inability to talk honestly with each other, to bear their souls, and treat each other as their best friend. They talk about superficial things in order to impress one another. And then he continues, I find that too many people talk right through each other rather than to each other. He concludes, this lack of communication brings on drinking, infidelity or physical or mental abuse for many, and there is a lack of tolerance and inability to bear discomfort or to recognize that they are not perfect and neither is their mate." Close quote. There is really only one way to ensure good family communication, and that is the Lord's way. He advocates the counsel method. The Church is made up of counsels. Certainly one of the most important of all the Church councils must be the family council presided over by the, the husband and the wife. In this council, parents should stand equally yoked together, just as they are meant to share equally in every priesthood blessing that accrues to their family circle. Through the eternities, the Lord's eternal objective for a married couple is that they become one. Next, the Lord instructs us to reason together. No arguing, no haranguing, no backbiting but rather reasoning together with soft-spoken voices. What a great example for the children! How can a family go wrong if each major decision is carefully measured by gospel teachings? And then, after reasoning together, the decision could be made to move forward confidently and in harmony with divine law. The Savior taught the extra mile, which means unselfishness. By just going the extra mile, every marriage relationship could be successful. But an extra mile effort on just one side of the boat means imbalance, and a capsized marriage is likely. Unselfishness must come from both sides. Every couple, whether in the first or the twenty-first year of marriage, should discover the value of pillow talk time at the end of the day, the perfect time to take inventory, to talk about tomorrow. And best of all, it's a time when love and appreciation for one another can be reconfirmed. The end of another day is also the perfect setting to say, Sweetheart, I am sorry about what happened today. Please forgive me. You see, we're all still imperfect, and unresolved these differences allowed to accumulate day after day added up, add up to a possible breakdown in the marital relationship, all for the want of better communication and too often because of foolish pride. Now, the Church has always taken a firm stand against dictatorships of any form. Any man who chooses to administer the office of his calling 
as a priesthood leader in the home by dictatorial methods is out of harmony with gospel teaching. He will not enjoy the spiritual rewards of reasoning together. His pillow talk will cease to be a two-way communication, and rebellion will usually follow. Dictators are always quick to issue an ultimatum, and in case you have not discovered it, an ultimatum in today, to today's youth is almost guaranteed failure. It's the equivalent of waving a red flag. It's like declaring war on those you love. The Lord warns us that no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. I like the advice given by President Joseph F. Smith. He said this to fathers, It is only when men depart from the right spirit, when they digress from their duty, that they will neglect or dishonor any soul that is committed to their care. They are bound to honor their wives and their children. There is yet another major cause for divorce that should not go unattended, the mismanagement of family financial resources. To pay tithes and offerings while ignoring the balance of Heavenly Father's advice concerning sound judgment in family finances will probably cause the windows of heaven to stick a little bit. The promised blessings will not likely be forthcoming as expected. Every prophet in this dispensation has taught in clear, unmistakable terms that the saint should stay out of debt. We heard it again this morning from President Kimball that we should not participate in something-for-nothing schemes. That has been stressed today. He advises us to be frugal in saving and to earn our money the old-fashioned way by the sweat of our face. We are admonished to teach our children the ethic of work. We have been encouraged at every turn to set the proper example of industry and thrift and also to be generous and consistent in our offerings to the poor and the needy. During these days of a strained economy, it is imperative that the family live within these divine injunctions. Each husband and wife needs to reason together about the family budget on a regular basis. If downward adjustments need to be made in the family spending habits, it is far better to do what needs to be done now rather than build up to an impossible financial crisis later on, a crisis that too often leads to the divorce courts. Few things are as destructive in a marriage as the statement, Sweetheart, I just signed up today for a $200 course at the local health spa. A well-planned health course may be just the thing, but not as a surprise addition to an already strained budget. This could have been and should have been a prime topic for pillow talk beforehand. As Elder Maxwell told us so well recently, if your companion is going to participate in a crash landing, then she should also help to file the flight plan. <laughs> now quickly, just to mention three items as foundation stones to a secure marriage. First, faith, the first principle of the gospel, and it must be the first principle of your marriage. Not only faith in God and in His beloved Son, not only in the living prophet, but may I also suggest a sincere and ever-growing faith in each other and also in your children. Second, obedience, often referred to as the first law of heaven. Without obedience to God's law, there could be no blessings. Obedience to our covenants with the Lord are forerunners to peace and love within the family circle. And then I mentioned third, loyalty. Loyalty to a companion through thick and thin. This will develop a basic character trait so strong that loyalty to the Church and true principles will follow just as naturally as night follows the day. The law of chastity is one of the Ten Commandments. This demands loyalty in marriage. Brothers and sisters, protect this sacred principle as though your life depended upon it, because gospel truth confirms that your eternal life most certainly does depend upon fidelity in your marriage. The scriptures confirm the eternal truth that marriage is ordained of God. And then this, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man. And according to a prophet of this dispensation, God not only commends, but He commands marriage. 
while man has yet, was yet immortal, before sin had entered the world, our Heavenly Father Himself performed the first marriage. He united our first parents in the bonds of holy matrimony and commanded them to multiply and replenish the earth. This command He has never changed, abrogated, or annulled, but it has continued in force throughout all generations of mankind. Mark confirms, what God, got what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Now, brothers and sisters, every divorce in the Church affects the work of the Kingdom adversely. There needs to be greater effort on the part of each companion threatened by divorce. There needs to be more counseling, not only one with another but also with appropriate priesthood leaders. There needs to be more universal understanding about the eternal nature of the marriage covenant. Time and experience has proven that unselfishness is the key to a successful marriage. For you see, unselfishness welcomes reasoning together. Unselfishness insists on an extra mile effort. Unselfishness paves the way for family financial security. Unselfishness stops divorce. And don't you agree that perhaps the most important questions that will need to be answered by a divorced person in the hereafter will be these? Number one, did you do everything possible to save your marriage? Number two, were gospel truths applied to the fullest? And thirdly, did you seek out, listen to, and abide by priesthood counsel? May he bless us to regard every marriage as an act ordained of God. For as President Joseph F. Smith said, it is the hope of the human race. And these thoughts I leave with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm proud to be a member of this great Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What an appropriate name for the true Church of Christ to bear in this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. I love the Church because of what it teaches me. Some years ago during the war, Brother Widsoe went to land in Great Britain to preside over the European mission. And when the emigration officials saw his papers and who he was, he said, nothing doing. We've been letting your missionaries in but we don't want any of your leaders. Go sit down. So Brother Widsoe went and sat down. In a few minutes, he called him back, and he said, If I let you enter my country, what will you teach my countrymen? And Brother Widsoe said, I'll teach them where they came from and why they're here and where they're going. The man looked up to him and he said, Does your church teach that? And Brother Widsoe said, It does. Well, mine doesn't, he said. To me, that knowledge is worth more than all the wealth in this world. If we don't know where we came from and we don't know why we're here and we don't know where we're going or how to get there, we're just like a ship on the ocean without a rudder, a rudder, a sail, or anyone to guide it. We might keep afloat, but we'll never come into port. My church teaches me that I am a son of God, the Eternal Father, and therefore I have all of the attributes in embryo to develop like my father just like my sons have become like me and I became like my earthly father. The Lord stood in the midst of the spirits before this world was created. He said there were many of the noble and great ones, and they couldn't be noble and great if they hadn't done something to achieve nobility 
and greatness before they were born here in this world. And he said to those who are with him, See, yonder is matter. We will go down. We will organize a world upon which these may dwell, and we will prove them herewith, and see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. And then he adds, And they who keep their first estate shall be added upon, and they who keep their, fail to keep their first estate shall not have part in it with those who keep their second estate. And those who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. I thank the Lord that my church teaches me that I kept my first estate in that spirit world or else I would have been cast down to this earth with Satan and a third of the hosts of heaven. And the, the cry went out, Woe to them that dwell upon the earth, for Satan is cast down, and he goeth about seeking whom he can destroy. And so the, uh, the, uh, the fact that I kept my first estate invited me and entitled me to all the beauties and the joys of this world which has been mentioned here in this meeting today. And it gave me the right to have this body. And maybe I can't appreciate as much what that ought to mean to me as I do by reading the scriptures. And then I read of when Jesus cast the devils out of the man who was possessed, and he asked his name, and he said, Legions because legions had entered in to the man. And so eager were those devils to get a body that they asked permission to take possession of the bodies of the swine that were feeding in the field. And Jesus permitted it, and they ran off in the river and were drowned, as I remember, 3,000 of them. Just think how eager those spirits are to get a body. And because we kept our first estate, we are now in our second estate. I love the statement in the Bible where Enoch of old, that prophet who was translated to heaven with his people, obtained the assurance while yet here in mortality that he had pleased the Lord. I think by the keeping of his commandments, doing all things as the Lord said that the Lord God had commanded, that we can get an assurance that comes through the Holy Spirit that our labors are acceptable to the Lord and that we have pleased him. I thank him for the many beautiful truths, many of which have been proclaimed here today. This principle of eternal marriage, I just can't imagine living on forever and forever after I pass out of this life without the companionship of my sweet wife and my children. How I thank God for them and for the knowledge that, the, that marriage and the family unit is intended by him as proclaimed so plainly in the Holy Scriptures to endure forever. Then I think of my children one by one, and I have over a hundred descendants, and I see and I see what they are accomplishing and the nobility of their lives, and I can just hardly realize that I can be their daddy. I feel more that that's nearer becoming a god than anything else I can do here in mortality, and from the days of thy youth, my youth and young manhood, I've tried to live before those children and descendants of mine so that if they walked in my footsteps, they would be uh, honoring their second estate and preparing themselves to have glory added upon their heads forever 
and forever. Then there's so many other beautiful principles of the gospel. When I became a missionary first, I never met anybody who believed in a personal God. My, what a joy to realize that that Christ who gave his life for us and took upon him the sins of the world, as Adam and as Paul said, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive to know that his father is as real as my father and that they as two glorified personages have revealed themselves in this dispensation after centuries of darkness under the prophet Joseph Smith, whom the Lord had in waiting thousands of years ago, according to the Book of Mormon, for his day and time to come and bring men to a knowledge of the truth and to bring forth his truth among the people of this world. These are great truths. Many more can be taught. I, when I wrote the book, Marvelous Work and the Wonder, as a missionary book, I chose the statement of Isaiah when he said, Because this people draw near me with their mouths and with their lips to honor me, but their hearts are far removed from me, and they teach for doctrine the precepts of men. Then he goes on, Therefore I, the Lord, will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and the wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. This, the message of this great church, is that marvelous work and the wonder that Isaiah saw that would come forth when men would teach for doctrine the precepts of men. Being a missionary, as far as I have time, let me give you one or two little missionary experiences to indicate what Isaiah meant when he said that they would worship him by the precepts of men. As I finished my first mission over in Amsterdam over 75 years ago, I was invited into the home of one of the saints to talk to her neighbor. When my companion and I arrived, the neighbor was there, but she had her minister. We had little difference of opinion on priesthood, and right there he challenged me for a debate in his church on the next Saturday night. And when we arrived, the church was full. All of his people were there and all of our people. How our people found it out, I don't know. I didn't tell them. And uh, <laughs> he stood up and said, Now, inasmuch as Mr. Richards is a guest in our church, we'll accord him the privilege of opening this debate, and we'll each talk for 20 minutes. Is that agreeable to you, Mr. Richards? I said very much. I didn't tell him, but I would have given him the shirt off my back for the privilege of opening that debate, and he just handed it to me on a silver platter. <laughs> I didn't know... I didn't know whether the Lord had anything to do with it or not, but I thought he did. Then he said, we'll each speak for 20. Oh, I said that. <laughs> then I stood up and I said, the last time I talked with my friend, we had a difference of opinion on priesthood. Tonight I've come prepared to discuss that subject, but I don't propose to start at that point. This is one of my strong points in my mission. If you're going to build a house, you don't try to put a roof on it before you get the foundation in. They agreed at that. So I said I propose to lay the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I choose for my text the sixth chapter of Hebrews where Paul said, leaving the principles of the gospel of Christ, let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of faith toward God, repentance of dead works, the, lay, the, the uh, doctrine of baptisms, 
the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And uh, uh, I, I hurried over faith and repentance. I thought they believed that. I spiked down baptism by immersion for the remission of sins till everybody was giving me a card. Then it came to the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. And they didn't believe that. I never found a church that did believe it outside of our church. They think the Holy Ghost comes just like the breezes that blow over your head. So then I quoted them when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God through the preaching of Philip. They sent Peter and John. And when they came, they prayed for them. They laid their hands upon them. And they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon the sorcerer saw that the Holy Ghost was conveyed by the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give unto me this power, that whomsoever I lay my hands may receive the Holy Ghost like unto these. And Peter said, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast spent that the gifts of God can be purchased with money. And then I sat down. I know I gave him a few more references on laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then I sat down. And he stood up and talked for 20 minutes. And he never once mentioned a word I'd said. He started on the mountain, met a massacre, and the Mormon Bible. And Joseph Smith admitted that he'd made many mistakes. And then in a most courteous manner, now if Mr. Richards will enlighten us on these matters, I'm sure this audience will be most appreciative. I'm on my feet like that. My companion said, how did you think so fast? I said, what have you been praying for all week? I said, <laughs> I said, in the days of the Savior, his enemies tried to trick him with cunningness and craftiness. I don't suppose there's anybody here tonight that would like to see us resort to those old tactics. I said, if I understand a debate, it's the presentation of argument and the answering of these pre those presentations. Has this man answered any of my arguments? Everybody said no. And so I said, all right, my friend, you may have your 20 minutes over again. And he couldn't do it, and I knew he couldn't. Finally, his wife stood up in the audience, and she said, what Mr. Richards is asking is fair. You ought to answer him, and then he couldn't do it. And I said to my companions, stand up, give me my coat and hat. I said, one more chance. I'm willing to remain here till 10 o'clock tomorrow morning when we have to be in my own church, provided this debate can go forward on the basis that you set it up. And if not, I'm going to leave and ask my companions to leave and ask our members to leave, and we leave it with you to settle with your people for what's transpired here tonight. I said he met him on the street a number of times after that, but he nicked his head so he didn't need to speak to me. <laughs> Do I have one for one more? Should I time up? Go ahead. No. <laughs> now that's, that's what Isaiah meant when he said that they were teach doctrines of men, precepts of men. Now I'll give you one more. Down in Quitman, Georgia, I, while I was mission president, I preached a sermon on the eternal duration of the marriage covenant and the family unit. And I had a chart there that listed the churches and what their beliefs were on major things, and those were official statements from the leaders of those different churches. And not one of them believed that the family unit would endure beyond the grave or the, fam or the marriage ceremony. And I stood at the door as the meeting was over, and a man came up and introduced himself as a Baptist minister. And I said, did I misquote you here tonight? He said, no, Mr. Richards, it's just like you say. We don't all believe all the things our churches teach. I said, you don't believe them either. Why don't you go back and teach your people the truth? They'll take it from you, and they're not ready to take it from the Mormon elders yet. said, I'll see you again. That's all I could get out of him that night. 
Next time I went there about four months later, he had read my, of my coming in the newspaper, and Larry, he was standing outside of that little church, and as we shook hands, I said, I'd certainly be happy to know what you thought of my last sermon here. He said, Mr. Richards, I've been thinking about it ever since, and I believe every word you said on that light have heard the rest. We never get talked out. That's why Brother Benson has tapped me on the lay here to get me down in a minute. Now, I'll tell you one more if there's time for it. Over in Utrecht, Holland, they had a seminary where they trained ministers. And the young men who were studying for the ministry used to come and stand outside of our meeting and listen. And then when the meeting was over, they would come in and argue with us. But one of those young men, I convinced him that baptism was to be by uh, by, uh, by immersion for the remission of sins and the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. And he didn't, hadn't been taught that, and he didn't believe it. And he said, Mr. Richards, do you think the Lord will hold us responsible if we teach things that we know are not in full accord with the Holy Scriptures? I said, my friend, I'd rather let the Apostle Paul answer that question. He said, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which is preached unto you, let him be accursed. And we didn't have any more arguments there. I think my time's up. God bless you all. I love the Lord. I love his church. I love the saints. I know them all. All but their names. God bless you, I pray, and leave you my blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The Galilean fisherman, Simon Peter, upon recognizing for the first time the divine power of Jesus, exclaimed, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Each one of us at times may feel as Peter, conscious of our failings and uncomfortable at the thought of approaching the Lord. Transgression causes us to feel estranged from our Father in heaven, and we feel unworthy of his love, fearful of his disapproval. Yet, having transgressed his laws or disobeyed his commandments, we need the strengthening influence of our Father to help us overcome our weakness, to repent and become reconciled with Him. Unrepented sin tends to become habitual and is frequently accompanied by a deepening sense of guilt which may make repentance increasingly difficult. This feeling of estrangement from the Lord becomes itself an impediment to repentance and reconciliation with Him. Knowing we have offended our Father in heaven, we are afraid to ask his help, feeling that we don't deserve it. Paradoxically, when we are most in need of the Lord's influence, we deserve it least. Nevertheless, in such circumstances, he says to us, as Jesus said to the trembling Peter, Fear not. My message today might best be illustrated through the experiences of a young couple whom I will call John and Gail. John was a thoughtful, kind young man, affectionate with a frank and open manner. He sincerely tried to obey the Lord's commandments and found honest contentment in the joys of family life. Gail, his wife, was young, attractive, high-spirited, but inclined toward more worldly interests and activities. The society in which they lived was, in general, one of affluence and materialism. People seemed preoccupied with temporal gain, social status, entertainment, and self-gratification. Religious leaders were concerned about the apparent breakdown in family life and moral standards. In the early years of their marriage, John and Gail were blessed with children, first a boy and then a girl. But Gail seemed disinterested in her domestic responsibilities. 
She longed for glamour and excitement in her life and was frequently away from home at parties and entertainments, not always with her husband. In her vanity, Gail encouraged and responded to the attentions of other men until eventually she was unfaithful to her marriage vows. Throughout, John encouraged Gail to appreciate the joys of family life and experience the rewards of observing the laws of God. He was patient and kind, but to no avail. Shortly after the birth of a third child, a son, Gail deserted her husband and children and joined her worldly friends in a life of self-indulgence and immorality. John, thus rejected, was humiliated and brokenhearted. Soon, however, the glamour and excitement that had attracted Gail turned to ashes. Her so-called friends tired of her and abandoned her. Then each successive step was downward, her life becoming more and more degraded. Eventually, she recognized her mistakes and realized what she had lost but could see no way back. Certainly, John could not possibly love her still. She felt completely unworthy of his love and undeserving of her home and family. Then one day, passing through the streets, John recognized Gail. Surely he would have been justified in turning away, but he didn't. As he observed the effect of her recent life, all too evident, a feeling of compassion came over him, a desire to reach out to her. Learning that Gail had incurred substantial debts, John repaid them and then took her home. Soon John realized, at first with amazement, that he still loved Gail. Out of his love for her and her willingness to change and begin anew, there grew in John's heart a feeling of merciful forgiveness, a desire to help Gail overcome her past and to accept her again fully as his wife. Through his personal experience, there arose in John another profound awareness, a realization of the nature of God's love for us, his children. Though we disregard his counsel, break his commandments, and reject him, when we recognize our mistakes and desire to repent, he wants us to seek him out and he will accept us. John had been prepared through his personal experiences for a divine mission. Though I have taken some literary license in telling the story, it is the account, perhaps allegorical, of Hosea, the prophet of the Old Testament, and his wife, Gomer. Portraying God to ancient Israel as a loving, forgiving father, Hosea foreshadowed more than most Old Testament prophets the spirit and message of the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, and modern revelation. In these latter days, the Lord has said, For I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Nevertheless, He that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. By disobeying the laws of God and breaking his commandments, we do offend him. We do estrange ourselves from him. We don't deserve his help and inspiration and strength. But God's love for us transcends our transgressions. When we disobey the laws of God, justice requires that compensation be made, a requirement which we are incapable of fulfilling. But out of his divine love love for us, our Father has provided a plan and a Savior, Jesus Christ, whose redeeming sacrifice satisfies the demands of justice for us and makes possible repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation with our Father. For indeed, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
we may accept this great gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And repentance followed by a covenant made with him through baptism of the water and of the Spirit. Then each week as we receive the sacrament, we renew our covenant that we will always remember him and keep his commandments. The promise attached to that covenant is that we may always have his spirit to be with us. Hosea's ancient message is repeated and elaborated throughout the scriptures. Through Isaiah, another Old Testament prophet, the Lord said to his people, Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The Lord speaking to Alma, the Nephite prophet, says, Whosoever transgresseth against me, him shall ye judge according to the sins which he has committed. And if he confess his sins before thee and me, and repenteth in the sincerity of his hearts, him shall ye forgive, and I will forgive him also. Yea, and as often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. Too often we make repentance more difficult for each other by our failure to forgive one another. However, we are admonished in modern revelation that ye ought to forgive one another. For he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, and there remaineth in him the greater sin. I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. Also from modern revelation comes one of the most comforting, hopeful pronouncements ever spoken. He who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven. And I, the Lord, remember them no more. God is our Father. He loves us. His love is infinite and unconditional. His sorrow is great when we disobey his commandments and break his laws. He cannot condone our transgressions, but he loves us and wants us to return to him. I know of no greater inducement to repentance and reconciliation with our Father in heaven than an awareness of his love for us personally and individually. That such awareness may increase within each of us is my prayer to which I add my personal witness to you individually that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Savior of all mankind, and the Redeemer of each of us individually. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Last summer, on a lonely stretch of desert highway, we saw ahead what appeared to be the road covered with water. My children would have wagered their entire savings on that fact. But within a few minutes, we were at the distant spot and saw not one drop of water. What an illusion! How many things there are in this life that appear to be one way and all of a sudden are the reverse. Satan operates that way. He is the master of illusion. He creates illusions in an attempt to detour, dilute, and divert the power and the attention of the Latter-day Saints from the pure truth of God. He is particularly effective at creating spiritual illusions that cause a counterfeiting of spirituality a spiritual instability, a self-deception, spiritual illnesses sowed in the heart little by little to harden the hearts of men and to lead them into sin and away from God. May I share a few of Satan's cunning illusions which undermine spirituality? Satan, with an illusion, leads a man to puff himself up with pride to say, I am my own man. I know the Lord lives, but he expects me to handle this particular matter on my own and not bother him with any details. 
Not being familiar with the scriptures, the man may not know that Satan teaches the world there is no God. But to the saints, he simply says, There is a God, but he is only generally involved in your life. He would not specifically help you today. Or he teaches the world not to pray. But to the saints, he simply says, Don't pray now. You don't feel like praying right now. The net effect is the same. Satan, in another illusion with vain imagination, teaches a man that the man is spiritual and humble. He begins to believe it and then acts in the eyes of the people as if he were. He begins to drift, but full well believes, because of the illusions being created, that he is still on the straight and narrow. He develops a holier-than-thou attitude, but in his heart he is hardened, past feeling, and prideful. The master of illusion teaches men to honor the Lord with their lips while their hearts are far from the Lord. With others he disguises truth and equates spirituality with knowledge, with little or no emphasis on application of truths in personal lives. The man goes along his own way with the disguise of imagining himself to be learned, leaning on his own understanding, seeking the honor and esteem of men, and feeling it is sufficient to teach and not to do. The knowledge, then, in and of itself becomes an illusion and a stumbling block to maintaining the Spirit of the Lord. Still others the Lord blesses with great material blessings, but then Satan cunningly creates illusions and reverses the use of these blessings. He leads one to set his heart on the things of this world. The man begins to not esteem his brethren as himself, but creates divisions, inequalities, or status distinctions among the people. Yes, he was the liar from the beginning. He is the author of all sin. He doth carry on his works of darkness as he can get hold upon the hearts of the children of men. In this world of illusions, Satan sows selfishness, unbelief, fear, doubt, greed, spiritual instability, and a general concern for self into men's hearts. He is a master builder of spiritual detours to waste time, divert attention from that which is good, and diminish spiritual receptivity. Satan especially desires to deceive the Latter-day Saints, those who know the truth about him, those who can particularly influence others in their teaching and living of the gospel in the home, in the classroom, from the pulpit, and in the world. In these days of increasing deception and more to come, one must be aware of Satan's spiritual snares and be sure of his own discernment. I would like to suggest eight standards against which a person can measure one's own teaching of the gospel or doctrines taught by others to help one unravel illusions and discern the truth. These standards might be entitled Spiritual Guides for Teachers of Righteousness. 1. The teacher will not only teach the truth, but the Spirit of the Lord will accompany the truth and the teacher. Both should be subject to spiritual confirmation at any time. He will not teach without authority nor speak independently for himself, knowing that even the very elect can be deceived. 2. The teacher will be in accord with the general authorities as a group and as local leaders, knowing they are guides to safety. He will have desires to follow and conform to their teachings and example in all their spiritual and temporal declarations, knowing the Lord gives them the gifts of discernment. He will not complain, criticize, or speak evilly of the Lord's anointed, knowing that such a practice is an early warning sign of apostasy. 3. The teacher of righteousness will teach from the Holy Scriptures and that which is taught and confirmed by the Holy Ghost. He will not teach for doctrines the commandments of men. He will not mingle the history and opinions of men with the Scripture 
nor spend religious instruction time teaching speculation or the philosophies of the world, thereby giving Satan's views exposure. He will not teach doctrines upon which the Lord's prophet has not spoken. He knows that the scriptures lead one to faith on the Lord and unto repentance and bring a change of heart. 4. The teacher will teach in simplicity to the true needs of the people basic gospel doctrines like faith, repentance, and prayer, which all men, all men can apply. He will not look beyond the mark by exaggerating, by teaching in the fringe areas, by expanding on the scriptures, or by teaching exotic extremes in any principle, like excessively lengthy prayers, false doctrines about the Savior, about Adam, or extremes in diet, or politics, or investment schemes. He will remember that Satan works in the extremes. He knows of the exactness of the Lord's doctrine, but also of temperance in all things. Number five, the teacher will speak in the light of day. He will not speak of secret doctrines, of special elite groups in the know, or of secret ordinations. Whatever he does will be in the plain view of the people. He knows that doctrines and ordinations are subject to the open view and vote of the saints. Six, the teacher will treat all those being taught as like unto himself, not esteeming himself above his brethren. He will seek excellence before the Lord, but not to excel over his companions in the work. He knows that none is acceptable before God, save the meek and lowly in heart. 7. The teacher of righteousness will be anxious to glorify the Lord. He will refuse to assume any glory unto himself. He will not practice priestcrafts, that is, preaching, and holding himself up as a light to the world for gain or for the honor of men. He will be a preacher of righteousness, speaking forcefully against sin, having an eye single to God, not to personal gain, honor, or popularity among men. He knows worldly aspirations leave the door open wide to apostasy. Lastly, number eight, the teacher himself will be in the process of continual personal repentance. He will be an example of meekness, charity, pure motives, dependence on the Lord. He will not just be teaching the doctrine, but also applying it. All in all, it will be evident whom he represents. In summary, then, how does one keep himself from not falling as some have into teaching and living semi-truths? Is it not by maintaining his own spirituality? What is true spirituality? Is it knowledge, intellect, academic learning? Perhaps more than anything else, it is an ongoing, purifying condition of the heart. It is an eye single to God. It is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It is a full purpose of heart. As I've had opportunity over the years to be among the brethren, the one distinguishing characteristic that seems to be found in all of them, as well as in other spiritual leaders, is their intense desire to take upon them the name of the Lord with full purpose of heart a desire to serve the Lord above all else at any cost. It should not surprise one to see that the Lord's list of requirements to serve Him in church callings are conditions of the heart, nor that the Lord said, I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. Brothers and sisters, no Latter-day Saint will go astray if he will follow the inspired counsel of the Lord and His servants. I testify that if a man will maintain his own spirituality by praying without ceasing, by studying and pondering the scriptures continually, and by, by obeying his leaders in the light and truth that he presently understands, that he will not be deceived. May the Lord bless all of us to not be fooled by illusions created by the devil. May we maintain our spiritual fine-tuning by yielding our hearts to God, becoming firmer and firmer in the faith, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In a revelation given to President Joseph F. Smith, which has recently been added to the Doctrine and Covenants as Section 138, 
there is an important message for all of us. On the 3rd of October, writes President Smith, in the year 1918, I sat in my room pondering over the scriptures and reflecting upon the great atoning sacrifice that was made by the Son of God for the redemption of the world. As I pondered over these things which are written, the eyes of my understanding were opened, and the Spirit of the Lord rested upon me. It is about pondering and what can be gained therefrom that I should like to address my remarks today. Pondering, which means to weigh mentally, to deliberate, to meditate, can achieve the opening of the spiritual eyes of one's understanding. Also, the Spirit of the Lord may rest upon the ponderer, as described by President Smith. And Jesus admonished the Nephites, Therefore, go ye unto your homes, and ponder upon the things which I have said, and ask of the Father in my name, that ye may understand. We are, const we are constantly reminded through the scriptures that we should give the things of God much more than usual superficial consideration. We must ponder them and reach into the very essence of what we are and what we may become. There is a story about a young builder who had just gone into business for himself. A wealthy friend of his father came to him and said, To get you started right, I'm going to have you build a ranch house for me. Here are the plans. Don't skip on anything. I want the very finest materials used, and I want flawless workmanship. Forget the cost. Just send me the bills. The young builder became obsessed with a desire to enrich himself through this generous and unrestricted offer. Instead of employing top-grade labor and buying the finest materials, he shortchanged his benefactor in every way possible. Finally, the last second-hand nail was driven into the last flimsy wall, and the builder handed over the keys and bills, totaling over $100,000, to his father's old friend. That gentleman wrote a check in full for the structure and then handed the keys back to the builder. The home you have just built, my boy, he said with a pleasant smile, is my present to you. May you live in it in great happiness. In this story, the young builder did not ponder over the consequences of his dishonest thoughts and acts. If he had have pondered, perhaps he would have he would have come to, to a clear understanding of what Jesus so long ago described. Therefore, whoso heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Had he pondered his actions, this unwise builder might have learned that to consent verbally to do the right thing, and then to live and to act without effort, to achieve what is right is ruinous. The story of the unwise builder could have application in the lives of all of us. We must ponder the consequences of our mistakes. Our Father in heaven has generously given to all of us life, which includes our free agency. With free agency comes the challenge to make the right decisions and choices, including the achievement of joy and happiness. This is an art in itself and must be earned. It is not possible to have a free ride on the road to joy, and there is no real joy that does not involve self-denial and self-discipline. We must ponder our actions and their results. We all know that there is much evil abounding in the world today. Many people are addicted to drugs that cause mental, emotional, and physical problems of great magnitude and of long-lasting duration. Marriage partners are unfaithful and cause the breakup of homes and families. Satan is working harder and is having greater success than perhaps ever before in history.
all evils to which uh, so many become addicted begin in the mind. And in the way one thinks, experience shows that when the will and the imagination are in conflict, the imagination usually wins. What we imagine may defeat our reason and make us slaves to what we taste, see, hear, smell, and feel in the mind's eye. The body is indeed the servant of the mind. In his widely acclaimed essay, As a Man Thinketh, James Allen reinforces what Jesus so beautifully proclaimed. Mr. Allen wrote, Man is made or unmade by himself in the armor of thought. He forges the weapons by which he destroys himself. He also fashions the tools with which he builds for himself, heavenly mansions of joy, strength, and peace. By the right choice and true application of thought, man ascends to the divine perfection. By the abuse and wrong application of thought, he descends below the level of the beast. Between these two extremes are all grades of character, and the man is their maker and their master. All that man achieves and all that he fails to achieve is the direct result of his own thought. The insidious process of transforming a person from goodness to evil is a subtle, usually undeliberate one. It is a process of pondering the wrong thoughts, of planting evil seeds in the heart. The word seeds is a graphic description of what begins the process and is so well described by Alma, the great Book of Mormon prophet. Now we will compare the word unto a seed. Now if you give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if you do not cast it out by your unbelief, that you will resist the Spirit of the Lord, behold, it will begin to swell within your breasts. And when you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say within yourselves, it must needs be that this is a good seed or that the word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul. Yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding. Yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. To soundly plant good seeds in your heart requires prolonged, intense, unremitting pondering. It is a deep, ongoing, regenerating process which refines the soul. Nearly a hundred years ago, Stanford University had a most distinguished president, David Starr Jordan. These thoughts from the strength of being cleaned by President Jordan will, I believe, summarize my convictions on this critical subject. Vulgarity, now known as pornography, is an expression of arrested development in matters of good taste and character. Vulgarity weakens the mind and thus brings other weaknesses in its train. It is vulgar to like poor music, to read weak books, to feed on a sensational press or debasing television, to find amusement in trashy novels, to enjoy vulgar theaters, to find pleasure in cheap jokes, to tolerate coarseness and looseness in any of its myriad forms. The basis of intemperance is the effort to secure through drugs the feeling of happiness when happiness does not exist. Men destroy their nervous systems for the tingling pleasure they feel as its structures, structures are torn apart. Parents should ponder over their family home evenings and their responsibility to teach the gospel to their family. All members should ponder over the instructions received in sacrament and priesthood meetings, in Relief Society and messages from home teachers. Priesthood bearers should ponder over their responsibility to honor their priesthood, to, to be examples of righteousness. Quorum leaders should ponder over their responsibilities to serve, teach, and to strengthen their quorum members and to lead in kindness and love. Young people should ponder over their problems that might confront them and be prepared to cope with them in a way that their parents, their leaders, and their Heavenly Father would have them live, that they might keep themselves clean and pure. As a church, as individuals, we should strive to pay a full tithing. I would hope, brethren and sisters, that we remember that the best by God's commandments was given to us by King Benjamin, a great, another great Book of Mormon prophet, when he said this, But this much I can tell you, that if you do not watch yourselves and your thoughts, 
and your words and your deeds and observe the commandments of God and continue in the faith of what ye have heard concerning the coming of our Lord even unto the end of your lives, ye must perish. And now, O man, remember and perish not. Jesus counseled, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. President Spencer W. Kimball is a model, a great example of us, of a prophet, seer, and revelator who does ponder and who prays and who receives revelations for the kingdom. In our quest for pure hearts, may we ponder righteous thoughts and acts, and may we be faithful and diligent. I bear an earnest and sincere testimony to the mighty transforming power of these noble ideals in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.